welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, a very special weekly roundtable. I have asked each of our panelists to select three areas they would like to focus on. So all panelists will not be weighing in on each area. Topics they have submitted thus far include Ukraine, January 6th committee and evidence of an attempted coup, police killings of black people, the unequal costs of the capitalist crisis, progressive left governments in Latin America, and more. I, like you, very much look forward to our discussion with panelists Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn. We will also have an update on the war in Ukraine. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Ukraine's leader says Russia is trying to humiliate the United Nations after it fired missiles into Kiev that destroyed a residential high-rise and another building and killed a journalist during U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres' visit at the nation's capital. Guterres toured areas surrounding Kiev that officials say are sites of Russian war crimes and later called for accountability. Ukraine is an epicenter of unbearable heart age and pain. I witnessed that very vividly today around Kyiv. The senseless loss of life, the massive destruction, the unacceptable violations of human rights and the laws of war. It is vital that the International Criminal Court and other UN mechanisms conduct their work so that there can be real accountability. He also called for peace and said the United Nations Security Council failed to do all it could to prevent the war from happening. Ukraine's President Zelensky said overnight forces were holding off Russia's attempted advance in the south and east of the country as attempts continue to secure safe passage for besieged residents in the devastated city of Mariupol and the thousands hiding under a steel plant there. The New York Times is reporting two Jewish groups have organized a rescue mission to evacuate some 80 Holocaust survivors from Ukraine. Some were left in nursing homes as their care providers fled to safety. They'll be taken to Germany. President Joe Biden says he's asking Congress for an additional $33 billion for Ukraine, most of it for military aid. The supplemental request comes as Russian leaders have increasingly warned the U.S. is conducting a proxy war and failed to rule out the use of nuclear weapons. Biden yesterday rejected that claim. They're not true. They do concern me because it shows the desperation that Russia is feeling about their abject failure in being able to do what they set out to do in the first instance. So it's, number one, it's an excuse for their failure. But number two, it's also, if they really mean it, it's, it's it's, no, no one should be making idle comments about the use of nuclear weapons or 
the possibility that they'd use that. It's irresponsible. More than 500 organizations have signed on to a letter urging the president to end the fossil fuel era and commit to a just transition to renewables. The letter notes the cost of the war and the sale of Russia's gas that's financing it. They say a transition would be an act of peace. Israeli police have clashed with Palestinian rock throwers at a major Jerusalem holy site, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Police say Palestinians inside the compound began hurling stones and fireworks in the direction of a heavily guarded gate that leads to the Western Wall, the holiest place where Jews can pray. Palestinians say the presence of Israeli police at the site and regular visits by increasing numbers of nationalist Jews are a violation of decades-old informal arrangements governing the site. The visits were halted last week for 10 days of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which concludes this weekend. Democrats announced legislation to rein in high cost of gas at the pumps in the U.S. Still in the works, New Jersey Representative Frank Pallone says it would allow states to go after oil companies for price gouging. It would give the FTC and the state AGs increased authority, including civil penalty authority, to go after oil companies and retailers that are gouging their customers, and it would cover both wholesale and retail sales. Now, of course, the, the bottom line is what we're saying today is that we're tired of the corporate greed. Uh, we're going to step in. Uh, we're going to uh, do what's right for the American consumers. A showdown on immigration at the House Judiciary Committee yesterday where Republicans grilled Homeland Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over what they call a crisis at the border. Mayorkas told the committee the immigration system was failing when he entered the job. We inherited a broken and dismantled system that is already under strain. It is not built to manage the current levels and types of migratory flows. Only Congress can fix this. A significant increase in migrant encounters will strain our system even further. Republicans also railed against the Biden administration's plan to lift the Trump-era Title 42 policy. The COVID-19 health order was used to prohibit entry of immigrants into the U.S. at the U.S.-Mexico border. Critics say it's been used to deny asylum seekers their legal right to seek refuge. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is appealing his conviction for murder in the killing of George Floyd. His attorneys argue jurors were intimidated by protests that followed and prejudiced by heavy pretrial publicity. Chauvin's asking the Minnesota Court of Appeals to reverse his conviction, reverse and remand for a new trial in a new venue, or order a resentencing. California Attorney General Rob Bonta has subpoenaed ExxonMobil as part of what he says is the first-of-its-kind investigation into the fossil fuel industry for its role in causing a global plastic pollution crisis. Bonta says the industry has sought to minimize public understanding of how widespread the use of plastics harms the environment and public health. He said the industry has engaged in greenwashing for decades by leading consumers to believe plastics were environmentally friendly, claiming they could be recycled. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Before we welcome our panelists and uh get their take on the topics they would like to discuss today. Just wanted to take a few minutes and update you on uh, some news from the Ukraine. Uh, President Biden has asked the U.S. Congress for an additional $33 billion more in aid for the Ukraine, this on top of billions already approved for Ukraine. And the UK, they are sending 8,000 soldiers to Europe. They will join tens of thousands already there sending a message to Russia. 
Ukraine published names and photos of 10 Russian soldiers they say are responsible for what is described as a massacre in Bucha in Ukraine. Russia launched missile attacks on Kyiv when UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres was there. Russia said it destroyed workshops at the Artem missile factory in Kyiv. Russia bombed the steel complex in Mariupol where soldiers and civilians were holed up. Also, NATO is looking at ways to strengthen the security for Sweden and Finland this even before those two countries have formally requested membership in NATO. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that the U.S. is strongly supporting Sweden and Finland uh, joining NATO. You might recall that um, NATO cozying up to Russia's borders, one of the reasons that Putin has given uh, for his illegal invasion of Ukraine. Now, the UN Secretary General Gutierrez met with uh, both uh, Putin and Zelensky. His meeting with Putin this week was the first time since the war began. He, it is reported that he agreed with Putin's proposal for evacuations out of Mariupol, this according to CNBC. And uh, a bit of a slight controversy with some remarks from President Biden. He did not mention the black woman basketball player, uh, Brittany Grenier, as part of negotiations for a prisoner exchange with Russia. Trevor Reed, a former Marine, was released. Uh, President Biden mentioned Paul Whelan, also a former Marine, but did not mention um, Grenier. Also, senior U.S. officials have said that they are laying the groundwork for a different global security order. This according to the Washington Post. Um, U.S. officials also finally admitted that they sought to weaken Russia. Uh, Congress also voted to refresh two World War II era, a World War II era law that would send military aid to Ukraine more quickly. It would allow the U.S. to send that aid more quickly. Uh, also, the Ukraine, they are boosting defenses near the southern border with Transnistria. Transnistria, a Russian region of Moldova. Uh, there's some controversy because there were ex, uh, unexplained, and that is in quote, explosions that took place in uh, Transnistria last week. So we really have no more information about what that is about. And uh, the Asia Times is reporting that 10% of Ukraine population now in exile um, they are also reporting that a conference hosted by Podemos in Spain, a left-leaning political party in Spain, a conference that was initiated by Progressive International, called for a ceasefire and a future of peace for the Ukraine. And in June, Vienna will host a series of peace events around the treaty on prohibition of nuclear weapons. This is a treaty supported by the UN, but opposed by all countries that now have nuclear weapons. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the Labour Party in the UK, he has complained that many countries are now increasing 
arms spending and putting resources into more and more dangerous weapons. He also says there must be an immediate ceasefire followed by a Russian troop withdrawal and an agreement between Russia and Ukraine on future security agreements. Um, he also pointed out that all wars end in negotiation of some sort, and why not? Why not now? A few other bits uh, in, in the news. Um, the, Sol the Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands in the Pacific uh, says that the Solomon Islands won't accept militarization of the Pacific. They signed a controversial security agreement with Russia, but the Prime Minister said that does not include Chinese military bases on the islands. Um, he also complained about the lack of consultation on the AUKUS treaty between Australia, the UK, the US and Britain, which basically would mean nuclear submarines in the Pacific. And uh, finally, uh, before we welcome our panelists here, Georgia now joins uh, Texas, Arizona, and Oklahoma in prohibiting instruction that asserts that the U.S. is quote-unquote fundamentally racist or that individuals quote should feel anguish, guilt, or any other form of discomfort or stress, end of quote, because of their race. So I guess I'm not supposed to be stressed out when pulled over by police officer whenever there are so many incidences of black and brown people never knowing if that's going to end up um, with your life being lost. Uh, anyway, let us now go and, and welcome our panelists. And as I said, our format is a bit different today because each of them will choose a, a topic of their choosing to discuss in each of the rounds that we will do. So a very rich discussion coming up. I'd like to welcome Laura Carlson, who is the director of the America's Program and works with Just Associates, an international feminist organization. She's based in Mexico City, a regular contributor to America's Updater, Foreign Policy and Focus, Counterpunch, and several Spanish language publications. Laura is also a television host and commentator on globalization, the drug war, immigration, and gender issues for various new international news outlets. Laura, welcome. Thank you very much, Margaret. It's a pleasure to be here. Jackie Go, thank you, Laura. Jackie Goldberg, governing board member for the Los Angeles School Board District 5. She is a former member of the California State Assembly. Jackie Goldberg had previously served as a member of the Los Angeles City Council before being elected to council. She served on and was later president of the Los Angeles School Board. Jackie, welcome. Thank you. Uh, nice to be back and have lots of interesting topics to hear about today. Oh, that's really looking forward to it. And Dr. Gerald Horn, Moore's Professor of History and African American Studies at the University of Houston. He's written more than 30 books. His most recently published book is The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. He's also the author of the award-winning book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century. Dr. Horn, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so um, Laura, we're actually going to start with you and uh, start off on the 
topic. I, I think you have about three or so that you would like to discuss. Uh, where would you like to start? Thanks, Margaret. Yeah, I would like to start with uh, the topic of the unequal costs of the capitalist crisis. And I know that we've talked about this before, but I think it's very important to keep it in mind and to keep tracking what's happening in terms of the crises. And when I say the capitalist crisis, essentially I'm looking at two, which is the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic and what's happening on a global basis with the spread and the cost of the pandemic and the advance of climate change and that how has, that has a disproportionate impact as well on the global south. Um, the global south has been punished at a far greater level by both of these crises. And we know that this are not natural disasters, but it's a reflection of a geopolitical power structure. The media tends to report these stories in kind of an isolated ways and uh, evoking some compassion for the plight of poor communities in Africa, here in Latin America, but never connecting that to a structural analysis or to any responsibility and particularly to any kind of a call for action that could actually not easily but viably correct some of the greatest uh, inequalities and tragedies that are happening right now. If we take a look at the pandemic, what we have in terms of statistics so far is that 80% of people in low-income countries still have not had a first dose of the vaccine. And this despite the fact that companies are now complaining, probably falsely, that there's an oversupply of vaccines in the country. And despite the fact that from the very beginning of the pandemic, everybody who knew anything about global health warned that unless we vaccinate people in all countries, we're going to continue to see variants and we're gonna to continue to see um, waves of contagion and of deaths throughout the entire world. There have been marches just yesterday, there were marches in the United States, in the UK, in India, in South Africa. Uh, many, pe many people went in front of uh, Pfizer offices to protest the fact that they're opposing technology transfers despite the crisis and obstructing research into other kinds of vaccinations and protection mechanisms. Pfizer's had windfall profits on death this year. They made $37 billion in 2021, which is up from $9 billion the previous year with, uh, with $22 billion in net profits. So Global Justice Now said that the annual revenue was more, is more than the GDP of most countries and accused Pfizer of ripping off public health systems. Moderna and Johnson Johnson are not far, far behind. They've also been accused of profiteering with the pandemic. And they have also, uh, they've also reaped record profits during this time. Then Oxfam report came out just recently and it's actually titled Pandemic of Greed. It says that millions of people would still be alive and that 99% of humanity now are worse off because of COVID-19. 160 million people have been pushed into poverty and 137 million people have lost their jobs. At the same time, again, what they emphasize is the 
unequal impact of what's happening there. The richest 10 men doubling their fortunes during the pandemic. A new billionaire created every 26 hours. And of those 40 of them have made their billions from COVID-19 related business activities. This is also reinforcing patriarchy. We're seeing that white men are rising and that the that women, women of color are bearing the brunt of the impact, both as caregivers in the void of state programs and uh, as, as people who become sick themselves, being exposed to the virus at a greater rate and having less action, ac- access to protective equipment and hygiene methods. Um, the, the statistic they give is that for every life lost in a rich country, four people die in a poor nation. That's almost 20 million people dead as a result of the pandemic and direct and indirect deaths. Yeah, so we've got a huge, we've got a huge problem. And at the same time, just to wrap up the pandemic part, there's no, um, there's no movement whatsoever. And in fact, now they're reporting uh, a step backwards in terms of the World Trade Organization providing something as simple, as logical, as humane, as a waiver on intellectual property rights for these companies that are raking in billions so that countries can provide themselves with the vaccines and make sure that there's a fair distribution of vaccines within the world. They just leaked this test, Public Citizen and others have come out saying that the text that has been proposed to supposedly deal with it is actually worse than the status quo. Right. Okay. Well, thank you for that, uh, Lauren. Just to underscore that it is now reported today that South Africa seems to be having another wave of uh, COVID. And in Los Angeles County, it is reported that the number of cases as well as the number of hospitalizations are on the uptick and there's some concerns there. But let us go now to uh, Jackie Goldberg. And Jackie Goldberg, where would you like to start with the topics you want to discuss today. What's your first one? My first one is why Republicans want to kill public education. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, no, I think it's important for people to understand that that is actually a goal. Uh, It is not to reform it. It is not to change it. It is not to make it better. It's to get rid of it. And they have four big reasons why they want to get rid of public education. The first and most important to them is, is that in most states, it takes a very large portion of the taxes. And so they would decide that if there wasn't public education, if people had to do it on their own or use charter schools or use private schools or homeschooling or whatever else they want to propose instead, what they would do is save a lot of taxes. In California, for example, a law was passed by the voters that says that 40% of our state's general fund must go to public education. Well, a lot of people in the Republican Party here and elsewhere in the country don't want that to happen. The second is teachers unions. Uh, One of the biggest formats for Democrats getting both money and votes is teachers unions. And of course, if there aren't public schools, there aren't teacher unions. That's why the whole movement with uh, with charters is to make sure that they don't unionize. And that's why we are having struggles right now in California, as some of our biggest charter school groups are trying to unionize and the fight is on. 
The third reason, and probably the one that, you, that you'll hear the most about now, is the curriculum. And it is absolutely true. The Republicans are not happy that mostly in public schools around the country, we talk about the value of diversity. We talk about the value of a people learning together and knowing things. We talk about our history being a complex history, not one that's all good or all bad. We talk about race. We talk about ethnicity. We talk about language. We talk about culture. Well, there are a lot of people who want their story told, and they're trying to do this with these things. They're, they're these laws that are being passed called uh, parents' rights, but really they aren't parents' rights. They are really the right to say that we do not want to have our public education help our young people look at the world as a place where everyone has a place to be. And that's a very undermining thing for them because what they're trying to say is, no, actually, it's just a, only a place for white people. And so they fight with things like saying critical race theory. But of course, critical race theory has never been taught in a single public school in America ever at any time because it is a graduate study of how the systemic issues of racism have evolved in institutions throughout the society. We don't teach anything like that in public schools. What they really object to is, is, our, is the teaching about racism is not a dead thing that ended long in the past and everybody's really cool now. They want us to teach that, that everything is good, that people who say that there are racist issues left in America don't really understand America. We've done that, we've been there, we had a civil rights movement, it's all over, everybody's good, go away. And finally, they wanna change things because they don't control what happens on school board elections. Right now, school board members are literally under attack. There are people receiving letters in the mail threatening their lives. There are people receiving letters in the mail saying it's too bad your mother is an ugly communist and a word for prostitute. A hand scrawled note was sent to the family in Loudoun County, Virginia. And what it said to us is if she doesn't quit or resign before the end of the year, we will kill her. But first we will kill you, they sent to the child of the school board member. So across the country, School board members are refusing to run for re-election. They have been threatened. They have been harassed. Uh, Biden did ask the uh, Department of Justice to look into it. I don't know whatever happened to that. But basically, it's the notion that the teacher is a villain and is to be fought and is to be uh, stopped from, from, from propagandizing their children with issues about how important democracy is and why it's important to fight for democracy. So that people should not understand that when Biden now is suggesting the highest increase in funding for public education, probably in 50 years anyway, that the resistance from the Republicans is not to save money, although that was number one. They always like to save money on education. It's because they do not like what is happening in public schools. And that is, is that public schools still on the whole around the country support democracy, support a multicultural notion of this nation, support the notion that it is important to fight racism, not just accept that it exists. And they don't like those things. And so their view is, is that it helps the Democratic Party with teachers unions. It does, it, it costs states much too much in taxes. 
And by the way, even when we underfund them and even when they've still managed to turn out children who care about this country, who believe that we've done things right and wrong in America. And my God, what are they doing? Wow, that just fantastic uh, summary there, uh, Jackie, and really underscores uh, the point I did in the intro about Georgia uh, now joining these other states, you know, in prohibiting instruction, particularly around areas having to do with race. Very scary times indeed. So we got to call it out. Um, Dr. Gerald Horn, um, your turn here to weigh in on the first topic you would like to discuss today. Well, it's a takeoff on the previous point, uh, that is to say the maleducation that the right wing is pushing in their effort to destroy public schools. I think that that particular tendency has infiltrated the actions and the thoughts of many who may not be aware. What I mean is that I don't think many black organizations, not to mention leaders, have absorbed the recent insights into history, not only presented by the New York Times 1619 Project, but by many other scholars and filmmakers that sheds light on this pandemic of police killings, the latest one being in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where uh, African immigrant is shot in the back of the head by a police officer, but also shedding light on imprisonment rates that are through the roof on the disproportionate use of the death penalty against Black people. Uh, even if you looked at the New York Times a few days ago, they had a startling story that uh, flew under the radar about an epidemic of Black men, homeless, unsheltered, dying on the streets of Los Angeles like flies, like as if this were Calcutta in the 1940s. And I think that the inability or the reluctance of the failure to absorb the new insight into the founding of the United States helps to handicap the effort to fight this new pandemic. Uh, what I mean is, is that the new insight is telling us that one of the reasons why black people are treated so horribly and atrociously today is because at the founding, that is to say the 18th century revolt against British rule, the enslaved African population generally did not engage in class collaboration and unite with their slave masters, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, et cetera, against London. And when you fight a war and lose, as what happened to Black people, you should expect to be pulverized and penalized forevermore unless and until you can turn the tables by lengthening the battlefield by pleading to the international community, which is what happened with regard to our alignment with the Haitian Revolution in the 19th century and national liberation movements in the socialist camp in the 20th century. The problem, however, is that today the right wing is moving ahead at warp speed, whereas many of our leaders and organizations are still acting as if this were the 1960s, where all you have to do is file lawsuits and appeal to liberal sentiment uh, even though we know that the courts are dominated by the right wing. And so this morning in the New York Times carries an article about how the GOP base is swallowing the discredited theory of replacement theory. Uh, that is to say that the Democrats are in cahoots with uh, immigrants to bring them across the border so they could replace the white working class and white middle class. Uh, this obviously is uh, fallacious. I mean, it's beyond ridiculous, but 
that is the state of play. And it also ties into a point we discussed a week or two ago when we were commenting on a column by New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, who was pointing out that Madame Le Pen, the neo-fascist leader in France who got 41% of the vote, uh, how her platform was stronger on pocketbook issues than the ultimate winner, the incumbent President Macron. And her line was basically to deprive immigrants and Muslims of social welfare benefits from the French state. Whereas if you look at their counterparts across the Atlantic, speaking of the Trumpistas, they're not stronger on pocketbook issues than the Democrats, which leads us to suspect, if not believe, that their ultimate ambition is to recreate the apartheid society of the 1950s. Uh, which would lead to a deprivation of many rights, not least by those, that is to say the black population, who have been fighting the right toe-to-toe uh, for centuries now. And finally, I think that this also ties into an issue I hope we, uh, I can address at least some more later, uh, which is the Ukraine crisis, because when I go on black radio, which I do quite frequently, the listeners want to talk about Ukraine in the context of maltreatment and mistreatment of African students, about Mr. Biden leapfrogging 100,000 Ukrainians to the head of the immigration line in the United States of America while Haitians are being roughhoused and manhandled on the Texas-Mexico border. And I think as well that the Black leaders and organizations have not grasped this nettle, perhaps because they're apprehensive, if not reluctant or afraid to sail into the teeth of what appears to be a pro-war consensus concerning Ukraine. But in any case, it's leading, it seems to me, to a weakening of confidence in their leadership. Right. And we will get a chance, uh, Dr. Horn, in another round for you to expand on that. Uh, some more really fascinating uh, roundtable uh, today. We do have to take a station break now. And when we return, we'll continue with round two, where our panelists will choose a second topic that they would like to discuss. Stay with us. We'll be right back. to April being Jazz Month, a month to uplift jazz. That's Milestones by Miles Davis. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. We're on Facebook. You can like and friend us there. And our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give 
a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Houston, Texas, in the United States, and internationally, a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners in Mexico. It is our weekly roundtable. Our panelists are Laura Carlson, Jackie Goldberg, Dr. Gerald Horn, and today they are each selecting topics that they want to discuss um, on uh, the show on our weekly roundtable, so slightly uh, different format. So Laura Carlson, we're going to go back to you, your second topic that you would like to discuss today. Thank you, Margaret. Well, I want to pick up again on the issue of climate change. Last year, almost 31 million people were displaced within their own countries, internally displaced as a result of climate change. Honduras is one of the countries that reported the largest number of people. Of course, here we can see the impacts of that with the flows of immigration, which are later criminalized. And, um, and rejected in the countries, despite the fact that, of course, it's the developed rich countries that have the most responsibility for what's happening. The um, numbers for people who have been coming through the countries and been displaced both internally and into migrations to other countries you know, are already rising so quickly. And then there's the secondary effects of food prices, for example. The United Nations calculates that food prices are up 22% this year at record levels, and that 830 million people are suffering malnutrition. We recently did a program about this uh, with experts and talked about how this is so closely related to the capitalist financial speculative system of food prices. That means that um, while people are suffering hunger, they're unable to find food and they're especially unable to pay for food. We're seeing the speculation on, of commodities on the global market that again is just making those who control this system richer at the same time. In March of last year, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres warned about a hurricane of hunger and the collapse of the world food system. It's uh, a little alarming that with the with the blitz of news about what's happening in Ukraine in Ukraine, and of course everyone should be concerned about that, but we're also seeing that some of these really critical issues are not coming to light the way that they should. Uh, before, it was always thought that the problem with the food crisis, in particular, which hits third world countries in a huge way, is that there was, a, there was a problem with distribution, and that's clearly true. For the first time ever, we may also be looking at a problem of production. With a combination of, of desertification, of uh, droughts and disasters, we're seeing a huge problem in production in the global south. There's only one bright side to this, or the brightest side to it, is that where the state fails, women uh, are, are filling in especially, and we're seeing a refocus on, on producing local food supplies. So we're seeing a proliferation, like we work with a group called Our Bodies, Our Lives in Malawi, and we're seeing a proliferation of projects like theirs that are led by women, that are community food gardens, that are not only filling those needs, but that are also um, having the cumulative effect of transforming local and global power structures. 
Right. Yeah. Just, just great. And, and Laura, speaking of women in India, in Andhra Pradesh, um, a huge population of women who are doing, working on soil regeneration, working with the soil uh, to, to basically mimic nature and are having great success with that. And also today, I just saw an article, I think it was in the Guardian, that said if emissions continue uh, at the rate they are, that all life in our oceans will be destroyed. Just a very, very frightening thought. (laughs) Wow. Thank you, Laura. Uh, Jackie Goldberg, um, the second topic you would like to discuss. Well, I have a kind of a combination one, but the first one really starts with uh, what's happening to uh, Holocaust survivors in Ukraine who are being moved to Germany. And uh, the irony that the, uh, some of them are feeling at having uh, escaped from Germany to either Russia or to the Ukraine uh, to escape the Holocaust. And uh, some of them didn't escape there. They were already there. You know, in, in World War II, the largest number uh, of uh, Jewish people that were killed were those in Ukraine. The Holocaust there was uh, devastating. And now the uh, Ukraine's Holocaust survivors are escaping war once more, but they're seeking safety in Germany. And uh, a woman uh, who was 90 said that the decision was made, not made without trepidation. Here's her quote. They told me Germany was my best option. I told them, I hope you're right, because she was a part of a rescue that was trying to get them out. But bringing these folks out of a war zone by by ambulance is certainly dangerous. Israel also has been taking in Holocaust survivors from the Ukraine as well. So there is a story here, though, in terms of Germany, of going back to a place they fled It's sort of out of the news these days. Everything in in war is really either Iran or or Ukraine or something. But really what we have in Israel right now is a government which none of whom intends to do anything about negotiating any kind of peace with the Palestinians in any way, shape or form. So there's no to a two state policy in Israel now, but there's also no to a one state policy, which gives Palestinians full rights. There's no to negotiating with them about anything right now. And there's an uptick in the number of Israeli settlers entering the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound. There's been a long-standing notion that only Muslims were allowed to pray at the compound, but now there's about 3,700 Israeli settlers there. And some of them wanted to go into that area in the compound to mark the Jewish festival of Passover. But even though it is not encouraged, the rabbinovit in, uh, in Israel says, no, the Jews shouldn't go there and pray. Nonetheless, it's happening. But the big problem really is that there is a lot more violence. Israel occupied East Jerusalem. Another armed conflict looks like it's brewing and nobody's really talking about it. There's been rocket fire going back and forth no casualties. But what we're coming up to now is, is that at least 26 Palestinians and three Palestinian citizens have died during the most recent period in raids by Israeli security forces in the occupied West Bank. What I'm trying to say here is, is that the current position of this government, remember now this government is formed by two different people who have different 
policies, but they don't have different policies about dealing with the issue of either settlement, and they don't have different policies about dishing, dealing with the issue of Al-Aqsa and that compound. And I think as long as we are having more construction of illegally occupied West Bank, city of Hebron, and as long as they're building more places for uh, Jewish settlers to take over what is in the Palestinian portions of Israel, this is going to end up with a war. And I don't know if it'll be a short 11-day war or whether it'll be longer, but I don't see anybody, the United States or anybody trying to get Israel to say that it you cannot continue to have a list of no, 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 no. They call them the seven no's now. No, we're not going to negotiate. No, we're not going to have a peace settlement. No, we're not going to have a two-state solution. No, we're not even going to have a one-state solution. And I'm very concerned that this is not getting the attention in American or other foreign policy. And I'm very concerned that we are in a situation now where the Palestinians may be very likely to be involved in something that will give Israel the excuse to provide a, quite a bit of terror to both Gaza and to Jerusalem and the West Bank. Wow. Um, I'm so glad you gave that update, Jackie Goldberg, because we haven't uh, been covering this recently on Sojourner Truth. And I was just talking to a colleague of mine um, who is, you know, Jew, of Jewish descent, but involved in Palestinian rights, uh, who was making the point that Modi in India is now following the example of, of Israel and in terms of destroying the houses, demolishing the houses of Muslims uh, on in India. You know, there's a whole thing being whipped up there with uh, the Hindu nationalism. So that's something to keep our eye on as well. Um, so thank you for that, Jackie. And Dr. Horn, the next issue for you. Speaking of Ukraine, as to whether or not the United States can afford both guns and butter, re reference my earlier point about the epidemic of homelessness, and in fact, homeless dying in the streets. Now, what's interesting is that the United States, per your previous comment about Pentagon Chief Lord Austin, saying that the United States wants to weaken Russia, that is to say, bog it down in the Ukraine. Well, if you flip that coin over, you may easily come to the conclusion that the People's Republic of China has an interest, not only in bogging down the United States and Central and Eastern Europe, which means that it cannot effectively effectuate the uh, heralded pivot towards Asia. But it also suggests that China might have an interest in propping up Russia, seeing it as a kind of firewall with the idea that if Russia somehow is defeated, that will be a step towards vanquishing the People's Republic of China. And in that regard, uh, there's an intriguing article in Asia Times this morning, which suggests an unprecedented state of affairs where the number one country, uh, United States of America, is becoming heavily dependent upon imports from the number two country. Uh, speaking of the People's Republic of China, and this is not decreased even with the Trump tariffs. And as well, you should expect the profiteering forces, which are now rampant, rampant in this capitalist world, to now engage in sanctions busting, since sanctions against Russia goes hand in hand with sanctions busting, like love and marriage. And in that regard, the Wall Street Journal has an article this morning about Italian corporations engaged in sanctions busting. 
I'm sure that further investigation would probably find that U.S. corporations are involved in, in, in sanctions busting uh, as well. Now, part of the problem, I think, is that a lot of the analysis of this crisis in Ukraine has a tunnel vision quality to it. This perspective is from Washington to Kiev to Moscow, ignoring what we talked about on Sojourner Truth more than once, which is the positions of the global south. And I find particularly many of our friends on the left do not want to engage that latter question for whatever reason. And I think that if you don't engage that latter question, you won't get a comprehensive analysis of what is the import and the impact of this war. Uh, to that end, we also have to pay attention to the United States trying to use the International Criminal Court to go after Russian leaders. We should ask ourselves, will that open the door to the ICC uh, going after Israeli leaders, uh, per Jackie Goldberg's comment about historic Palestine, or even going after U.S. leaders? We know that there is a so-called Hague Invasion Act where the United States threatened <laughs> not only sanctions against ICC prosecutors, which they follow through on, but even uh, intervening uh, in the Hague to stop their operations. And likewise, it's obvious that the United States is very upset with the operations of the United Nations Security Council. Uh, even today, there's a, there are major stories about how Russia supposedly was bombing Kiev, where when the United Nations Secretary General uh, Guterres was visiting uh, Ukraine. But if you start tampering with the Security Council and seek to oust Russia, will that open the door to permanent representation on this powerful body by India, South Africa, Brazil, for example? So we have to keep all of this in mind because we may be in the midst of some sort of tectonic shift that we have not seen the likes of in the international system over the past few centuries, uh, which could lead to the rise, if Washington is not careful, of a Chinese-dominated new system. Wow, <laughs> this is something I'm sure the United States is very much uh, fears. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. Horn. And uh, we have, uh, make a decision here. This is Margaret Prescott, by the way, host of Sojourner Truth. It's our weekly roundtable, and we are getting close to the top of the hour. We basically have about six um, minutes, and uh, that's not a lot of time to go in detail in a third topic, but why don't we give it a shot? If you would be mindful of the time, maybe get close to the top of the hour, we'll start with you, uh, Laura Carlson, because each of you will just have actually a, a little about a minute and a half or so um, to make some final comments or, or raise another topic, Laura. Sure, Margaret, and I'm going to raise a topic. Of course, it's much deeper, but I'm sure we'll have the opportunity to talk about it more later. And that is that as the contradictions of the capitalist system become clearer in these issues, especially that I highlighted at the beginning of climate change and of the global pandemic, what we've been seeing is uh, uh, punishing votes 
in Latin America and a rise of progressive left governments. And this has, this has provoked a question about what the possibilities and the limitations of those are. Everyone has a different context, of course, and a different set of pressures against them. But it's also a debate that I would imagine, that, that I know is implicit in the United States. After the big push of social movements to elect Joe Biden, of course, there's a lot of disappointment in, in what's being accomplished and not accomplished and some of the and some of the, the warlike and the militarist and other types of positions or positions on the border and immigration that have been taken during the administration. These governments in Latin America, while celebrated as an advance, are also being seen that way. I'll just mention the countries, some of the countries that are there in the forefront, which is Mexico now, now nationalizing lithium, taking some steps to roll back what have been the, the extreme neoliberal measures there. In Colombia on May 24th, uh, excuse me, on May 29th, the elections come up, a leftist is in the lead. Colombia has been the poster child for both a militarist domination and for neoliberalism of the United States with a heavy role there. So that'll be an interesting one. Honduras, woman president, trying to make changes with a backlash from the right and with a real questionable role of the United States, which is one of the big things we'll be watching. There's also Peru in a shaky position and Chile. And as each one of those, as I say, have its specific um, characteristics, at the same time, their experiments in breaking out of this hegemony and in questioning the neoliberal law model at the same time as figuring out how government works with social models, with social movements. And I think that the, as, as, a, yeah. as they're interesting to watch, we'll be watching that, in fact, next week at the World Social Forum here in Mexico. All right. Thank you, Laura and Jackie. Uh, just some quick thoughts from you. Okay. We're not done with the coronavirus. It's still happening, but it is changing. And it's changing because while the cases are increasing, deaths are declining. And deaths are declining because we have new forms of medicine to deal with it. But not everybody is getting access to those new forms of medicine. And so we are still having deaths, but they are down. So what this has meant is, is that because people keep claiming about how tired we are of the virus, people are removing masks. And you saw first with the dinner uh, that Democrats had a, a, few, a month ago or so where they had a huge 72 people got sick in one night. I think mainly what people are trying to deal with is when to mask and when not to mask. And the most uh, effective thing I can say to people is, is get vaccinated and wear your masks uh, whenever you are indoors, in spite of the fact that it's no longer required most places. We are seeing, however, that additional thing, side effects of the pandemic is, is that measles outbreaks in the world have increased. About 17,300 cases were reported in the first two months of this year compared to 9,700 in the first two months of last year. What that means is, is that in places like Africa, the Middle East, including Ethiopia, Somalia, Yemen, Nigeria, and Afghanistan, these outbreaks of measles are reflective of the fact that the pandemic has interfered with what had been normal global immunization coverage.
Right. Thank you uh, for that, uh, Jackie. Good reminder. And as I said earlier, COVID on the rise in, in L.A. County and South Africa also facing, you know, another another wave and waves happening in China and other parts of the world. So we're not out of the woods yet. Dr. Horn, we'll wrap up with you. A few minutes there for you. Listeners should pay careful attention to the January 6th Committee of the House of Representatives pay particular attention to the recent remarks of Congressman Raskin of Maryland, who has outlined already a story that he says will blow the roof off of the House when they have televised hearings in June. That is to say, he says that they have evidence that a coup was being plotted, no surprise to many of us, but that uh, Vice President Pence was reluctant to leave the Capitol on that day because he felt his security team was in cahoots with the coup plotter. And it's apparent that the coup plotters were willing to liquidate Mr. Pence himself. Congressman Raskin has raised serious and searching questions about the slogan, Hang Mike Pence, which you recall was being uh, broadcast by the insurrectionists on that day. He suggests that that came straight from the top. These televised hearings will be quite dramatic. And once again, I think it underscores the necessity for Pacifica analysis, because I don't think that the cable networks or NPR will be able to put this attempted coup in the context of other counter-revolutionary efforts, such as the overthrow of Reconstruction in 1876, or the secession from Texas from Mexico in 1836, leading to the acceleration of slavery. And so, as I know we're going into fun drive, this is an appropriate moment to once again underscore the absolute relevance and importance of KPFK and Pacifica. Absolutely, absolutely. And of course, the uh, Democratic representative, uh, Benny Thompson, who chairs the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th Capitol Hill insurrection, told reporters just yesterday that the committee will hold eight hearings spread out through the month of June. So we have to be following that. Rudy Giuliani expected to appear next month before the committee. So we'll see how all of that goes as more emerges. Well, a fascinating roundtable. I think this format worked quite well. I want to thank each and every one of our panelists, but we are out of time. Uh, Today's show produced by me, that's Margaret Prescott, our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas. We want to thank her very much. Our board up today, our engineer, Wendell Handy. Stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air on Tuesday. I urge all of you to tune into the webinar on Haiti. We'll be hearing directly from movement leaders on the ground in Haiti, 11 o'clock tomorrow morning on the West Coast, other parts of the country. You can adjust your time. Go to our website or to the HaitiSolidarity.net to get information on that webinar. Thank you for listening. I hope you get to do something really nice this weekend and stay well and safe. This is your host, Margaret Prescott.